Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at the Acton Institute. Acton Unwind is a new podcast, as this is the only the second episode. If you're listening to us in the Acton Line podcast feed, there will be a link in the show notes for you to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast feed at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Acton Unwind will disappear from the Acton Line feed in a couple of weeks. And since we're brand new, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, please, so that more people can find this show. We'll get to the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal and the 50th anniversary of America's departure from the gold standard in a bit. But first... Let's go to Afghanistan, not literally go to Afghanistan because everyone is trying to get out of Afghanistan. The American military has been getting out of Afghanistan. And as a result, we've seen the collapse of the Afghan government. And if you saw the videos this morning, we're talking on Monday morning of people literally clinging to planes trying to get out, knowing what the reestablishment of the Taliban government in Afghanistan is going to mean there. Uh, it's, it's a disaster, and it's not even a slow-rolling disaster. It's a fast-rolling disaster. And, and Sam, here's where I want to go first with this. W- what I'm struck by is how this is, at first, from a American perspective, because I think we can stipulate all that the return of the Taliban running the nation, the country of Afghanistan is going to mean for the subjugation of of women and for uh, human freedom, for economic freedom, for any of the things that the Afghan people may have enjoyed over the last 20 years, setting aside your views on on American foreign policy over that time. But what I'm struck by is how this is another example here in the United States of a failure of our institutions. And I think the clearest example to me of that is you had what were supposedly the smartest people, the generals, the experts, all of that saying that they expected at the beginning this would be a it would take about a year. They estimated for the collapse of the Afghan fighting forces of the Afghan security force and the Afghan government. And it took days. It took days. So one of two things is true. Either. They were completely wrong and they just intelligence, military expertise, policy, foreign policy experts all got it completely wrong or they knew that it was going to crumble in just weeks, days to weeks. And they said something else anyway, which just feeds into the massive distrust that Americans continue are continuing to have in our institutions because we feel like we can't trust them. Yes, Eric, I think that's all very valid points. Think about it this way. So when President Biden back, I think it was back in May, said something like, we will not see helicopters taking off the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. We won't be seeing 1974, 1F75 Vietnam images again. And yet here we are. So either the president really believed that um, and his advisors told him the contrary, but he went ahead anyway. Or the president didn't believe that, and his advisors uh, told him, no, no, it's going to be fine, and so he went ahead anyway. Or both the president and his advisors were uh, both confident that, the, as you say, the Afghan security forces could stand up and last for a little bit longer than they apparently have. In any case, all the, all those things are very worrying because that suggests to us that people who are entrusted with the most important job, the indispensable job of government, which is, of course, is uh, national security, got it terribly, terribly wrong. It reminded me of a little bit of a book that was written back, I think it was in the 1980s, called The Best and the Brightest by David Helperstein, I think it was. And he asked a similar question that to the one that you just led off with uh, this discussion, which was, How could it be that all these very, very bright people who spend a lot of time thinking about these things got it so wrong? And they obviously did. So, I mean, it's not the first time this has happened. It's happened before in American history. 
So uh, I think that raises a big questions about how much confidence we can have in some of our key institutions with some of their very important responsibilities. Uh, it also raises some other questions, though. And one of the questions that went through my mind as I was watching some of the footages, I'm sure you and Dan were yesterday as well, was maybe it's the case that there are some cultures that are just not amenable to things like liberty, constitutionalism, markets, rule of law, strong civil society, strong distinction between politics and religion, and the, frankly, you know, the, the Jewish, Greek, Roman, Christian, and Enlightenment sources that gave rise to all those things. I mean, I, I've thought for a long time that not every culture is especially amenable to those sorts of things, and that's a very uh, controversial thing to say these days, right, because automatically people will say, well, you're being disparaging of non-Western cultures, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, it does seem to be the case that there are some cultures that are just not amenable to these things, and it doesn't matter how much technology you have, it doesn't matter how much money you put into a country, it doesn't matter how much military expertise you lend to a country or invest in a country. If though if the culture is not amenable to these things, then at best you're you're holding you're you're spending a lot of resources trying to create something and institute something that in the end is just not rootable in that particular culture. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to think about. Um, but I think it plays into one of the things that Acton talks about a great deal, which is culture really matters. And maybe that's something that some of our policymakers have lost sight of because a lot of our policymakers, you know, they think in technical terms, in technocratic terms, if you do this, that will follow, et cetera. And culture doesn't fit very well into that way of thinking about the world. So it raises all sorts of interesting questions, I think, about um, the degree to which it's reasonable or, or otherwise to expect that particular cultures are going to be able to absorb these types of things without the culture itself undergoing major changes. Dan, do you think that's the case, that it, there's a cultural disconnect, that it, what Sam said, it is not easy for these kinds of ideas and ideals to take root in some cultures. I mean, certainly that's the case with regard to the Taliban itself, right? Um, however, you could, I think, point to the most of the last 20 years under the Afghan government that was supported by an American military presence, that it, you know, certainly had its problems, but that it was more or less functioning, that they had, um, you know, some more of the ideas, uh, Western ideas, Enlightenment ideas of freedom that were taking root in that culture. But to Sam's point, it, it takes a long time. And I think what it ran headlong into is just a clear reality that the Afghan security forces uh, were either incapable in terms of skill or will or both to fight to defend all of that. And the there was just not going to be an, an appetite for the Americans to stay there forever to make sure that this didn't happen. So I think I think Sam is right in the sense that, you know, Lord Acton himself talked about how liberty is the fruit of a as the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. Now, that being said, we have examples of countries like India that are in many senses um, intensely rural, still intensely communal, and India has problems with communal religious violence. But there's long been an educated elite in India that is well-versed in traditions of common law, constitutional governance, all of that sort of thing. And, and Afghanistan really didn't have that. Um, the, uh, the former Afghan president now, Ghani, was uh, – who had uh, – who has fled the country, uh, I believe for Uzbekistan over the weekend, um, 
is uh, somebody who had, you know, who was twice elected president, uh, both time very bitter contested elections, um, and was a former World Bank academic and has a background in international development. Um, and I think at the, at the very least, you need you need elites that are versed in these things. And that is um, that's an organic development. And that's where that begins. And I don't think there was ever, ever that sort of thing in Afghanistan. And it's also important to remember that the Afghan government did not control large swatches of the country before this latest and, and has never done so. So there has never been this sort of widespread rule of law, even with the American administration and involvement. Um, and there was also a hesitancy um, by both the Afghan government and uh, the uh, NATO figures and other nations involved in Afghanistan to include the Taliban in any of that governance, um, which made any sort of political solution impossible. There's a lot of people saying that this was inevitable, that once the American forces left, that this was all going to collapse. And there was just a certain inevitability to that, pointing out that the Afghan government did not have control over big parts of the country, I think certainly does speak to that. But there was clearly just an exhaustion with American involvement over there. And I think one of the bigger problems is that we don't seem to have a meaningful vocabulary to talk about this, that we we haven't even really wanted to talk about it for quite a while. And I think, Sam, this could go back perhaps to the first question that I raised, which is the failure of elites, the mm-hmm. failure of our institutions to articulate very clearly what we were doing there, why. And I know one of the great complaints, especially from libertarian critics of American foreign policy, is that, you know, well, you know, what is the vision for victory, right? What is the vision for when we could actually leave? And it, it, it strikes me that we just don't know how to talk about this, that people who should have been taking a more responsible role, people who lead institutions in talking about how we should view this conflict, how we should remember as we're approaching now the 20th anniversary of 9-11, why we were involved in this conflict and what good could could come out of it. Well, of course, the mission at the very beginning was very clear, right? It was to root out al-Qaeda and destroy it, uh, destroy the capacity of al-Qaeda to root itself in Afghanistan. And, and for the most part, that was more or less achieved, right? Very quickly, it turned out. It was you know, because they basically overran the al-Qaeda strongholds um, Bin Laden himself, we now know, ended up in ended up in, uh, Pakistan, in Pakistan, right? So, so I mean, that mission was achieved very, very quickly. You could say the same about the um, the second Iraq War, right? It was to take out the regime, but then you you know you run into this question: what comes next? And that's where I think um, uh, successive administrations. Democrat and Republican struggled to articulate a case for why America should be doing what it was doing. Uh, And maybe that's either because they don't really trust um, the public to have a serious debate about these issues. I think in some respects it may be because many people are worried that democracies don't have the capacity to make these sorts of long-term commitments, military commitments. That's been a theme that's been around for a very long uh, period of time. Uh, But I also wonder, uh, and I'm sure this has crossed your minds as well, about the degree to which groupthink tends to prevail within any set of given institutions, and a type of groupthink that goes beyond sort of Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative types of things, a type of orthodoxy sets itself into place within a given set of institutions, whether it's the Defense Department, the military, the National Security Council, among the people who are there all the time. We're not talking about political holdovers. We're talking about people there all the time. And it makes me wonder also whether a type of groupthink starts to dominate institutions, which is institutions are like that, right? They tend to encourage us to think the same way about particular things. And that means that anyone who comes along and challenges 
the orthodoxy is shunted aside or told you don't know what you're talking about or made very clear that their views are not welcome. So I, I do wonder about that question of institutional, um, <clears throat> a type of institutional blockage that starts to limit the capacity for those who are making the decisions to think beyond whatever is the established wisdom on a particular given subject. Sam bringing up the idea that uh, perhaps the elites weren't being fully honest with people, I think connects to the last 18 months that we just lived through in a domestic sense, right? That the one of the big problems we've been dealing with and another reason why we have undermined faith in our institutions is that the people who led those institutions uh, with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic felt mm-hmm. it necessary uh, to lie to us about certain aspects of it because they didn't think that the public could handle the truth on it. I mean, I think a clear, the clearest example of that is, is Dr. Fauci saying that, uh, oh, at the very beginning, masks don't mean anything. They're not useful. Um, and supposedly the purpose of this was they didn't want to run on the, uh, that kind of equipment because they needed it for people who worked in hospitals and doctor's offices, only to then flip completely and say, no, everybody's got to wear masks all the time. And it completely undermines any sense of trust that people have that uh, aside from the questions of groupthink that Sam just raised, that the people who are in positions of power are telling us the truth about anything. And when they start to believe that, then they have cause to question even the most obvious of truthful statements to think that, well, we're just being lied to all the time. So what they're telling me, even if, you know, the sky actually is blue and you can go outside and you can verify it, they have to be lying about it somehow. Yeah, the trust, the trust is a huge issue. Um, And I mean, you have we we've we've known for a long time that we have should have no degree of confidence in the appraisal of the Afghanistan situation. Uh, the Washington Post Afghan papers was a major story talking about corruption, both in, you know, the American administration as well as the local Afghan administration in terms of, in terms of Afghanistan, that things were repeatedly falsified, that they were not painting a picture. And while the American mainstream press is to be, there's, there's to be a lot of credit there in terms of publishing those papers, making uh, American citizens aware of that, those things, it kind of stopped there. There was no further reflection among uh, the defense and intelligence communities about that. And there's also a way in which so at the root of this is is not only is not only aligned a to the public, but it's also aligned to themselves. And you see this, um, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, folks who are anxious about a forever occupation in Afghanistan, um, you know, the critics of those folks would point to, you know, we're still in Germany, we're still in Japan, we're still in South Korea. Um, those are markedly different situations. We, we tend to have a naive understanding, and I think, I think the intelligence community and the State Department has internalized this to some extent, that we did all the heavy lifting there. And the reality of it is, is in all of those contexts, local elites were brought in. Um, there were, of course, war crimes tribunals. Folks were justly punished. But when the West German government reconstituted its military, its Justice Department, after, you know, after denazification ended, a lot of those folks were brought back into the system after, you know, the most grievous uh, violators of human rights were punished. And there was an effort to move past um, those mistakes of the past um, in a similar situation in in Japan with with folks being readmitted uh, to the governments. And we never, because we have forgotten that, because a lot of it is regrettable and a lot of it is embarrassing, because a lot of those folks involved in those administrations were not folks that we look back on as fondly. But they were, but they were necessary to 
political stability to those societies moving forward. Um, and that's something that I, I think I think um, the elites themselves have sort of lied to themselves about, about sort of the things, the, the prudential sacrifices that are necessary involved in any sort of governance. Another point, could I, could I just add one thing to it? Because I think that's a very important point. Of course, the, in the case of Germany and Japan, there was also a history, not the greatest history, not the deepest history, but there was a history of constitutionalism that existed before Japanese militarism, before the rise of the Nazis, right? So Imperial Germany, Weimar Germany were not lawless societies. They had constitutions. There were things that were done in particular ways. There was a sense that there was a be- people were beho- supposed to behave in particular ways. Even in, with the Meiji Restoration, there was a deliberate attempt to cultivate some of these, let's call them Western values and Western institutions. Those things didn't exist in Afghanistan. There's no history of that. Uh, it reminds me also of what Dan was just saying about the um, the the case of India, right? And there is, there's a very big middle class there, 300 million of them. They all speak perfect English. A lot of them are educated in Western countries. And they also benefited from uh, 400 years of British rule and you know, internalising things like common law, things like independent judges, things like a certain respect for rule of law, etc. And so that's all very different from the situation that was confronted in Afghanistan, and it does make me wonder uh, to a certain extent to which uh, Western countries and Americans, and I say this as someone who's an American citizen, we tend to project what we want to see upon a given situation. If only they could be just like us. They can be just like us, right? Turns out that in many cases they can't. And that's, you know, there's a reluctance, I think, to accept that. So, Dan reminded me of uh, what I had said earlier about we have this inability to to talk about this and a, mm-hmm. a problem with the vocabulary in talking about this because, as you invoked, you know, the we've been in South Korea for a long time. The United States has been in Germany. There's still military presences in these places decades and decades and decades after the end of World War II, after the end of the Korean War. And what strikes me about the conversation is we have replaced any thoughtful and meaningful conversation about what is happening in Afghanistan and in the Middle East uh, with vapid sloganeering and bumper stickers that are cliches that do our thinking for us, right? And even for people who think that 20 years in Afghanistan is too long without a clear idea of what we're doing there and why we're doing it, um, the, you know, endless war is a cliched bumper sticker that substitutes for thinking it's not thinking itself. The one that I find the most risible is the use of the term, uh, terms occupation and empire with regard to the American posture there. You know, if, if you're going to say that the Americans in Afghanistan circa, you know, 2019 is occupation, um, then here's the, my challenge for you. Uh, Germany in France, 1940. Are these the same thing or are they different? And if they're different, then we need to either qualify the word occupation or we need to find another term. Because I think we would all agree, I would imagine we'd all agree, that Nazi, Germ- Nazi Germany in France in 1940 is occupation. But I don't think you can say the same thing about what, ha- what has been going on in Afghanistan. And it, it reminds me of the great Bill Buckley line on moral equivalence that you can have a man who pushes an old lady out of the path of an oncoming bus and a man who pushes an old lady into the path of an oncoming bus. It doesn't suffice to simply condemn them both as the kinds of men who push old ladies around, that there needs to be a little bit more in our evaluation and calculus. But we're not interested in doing that. And we seem to lack the vocabulary vocabulary and the thought to do that in a meaningful way. Well, the only I, the thing I would say there is that I, I think that's right. The degree to which a lot of American foreign policy has been reduced to sloganeering, the way in which it's talked about through these types of cliches that you that you rightly point to. 
And the political process, domestic political process, I think exacerbates that problem, right? Because you have you have presidential candidates saying things like, I will win the war in wherever it happens to be. My well, favorite, I will get us out. My favorite example. My favorite example of this is every presidential campaign says after, you know, by the time I'm out of office, either four or eight years, we will have peace in the Middle East. And it's like right. they've only been fighting there for about 2,000 or some years. I'm sure right. we're going to knock it out in the next four to eight. Right. Or here's an, another way to think about it is um, remember, to a large extent, both sides of politics in the United States said that the United States should never, ever move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Remember that? And you'd have presidential candidates who would come along and say, I'm going to do it, and then they would never do it. it it's a sort of trivialization of these issues that I think is driven a lot by domestic politics. But it turned out, of course, that when the embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that we didn't have a meltdown in the Middle East. We didn't have mass riots. We didn't have um, all these countries deciding they were going to go back to war with, with Israel. So sometimes I wonder whether there's, an un- there's a very unhealthy thing that starts to happen whereby we have the group think, the institutional orthodoxy, together with this endless sloganeering, this sort of very cheap way about talking about foreign policy. So you end up with... Rhetoric, really bad rhetoric, and really bad institutional groupthink at the same time. And that's incredibly unhealthy for institutions, but also our capacity to have any trust in these institutions. A lot of a lot of these criticisms I feel come from America's own colonial past. And there, there's a notion that because America was able to throw off the British crown and was able to thrive and was able to become a world leader in arts, in culture, in commerce, um, that that's all that's needed. And that, and that, and that any sort of uh, intervention is always destructive. But the United States is a very, very unique case in a lot of ways. I mean, there's centuries of large self-government. In fact, a part of, part of what the American Revolution was about was about the intrusions of the prerogatives of those already existing institutions that had for themselves governed for hundreds of years. Um, and that's, that's not how this happens throughout the rest of history. Um, to go back to India, we recently had India's independence celebrated uh, over the weekend. And uh, the British did not, as, as, as Gandhi once pointed, we said, just walk out. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't. There was right. a long process, orderly process of institution building. India gained political independence, but Britain was involved for a very long time. Um, there were Royal Air Force officers uh, serving in India until the 1970s to train up an officer corps, these sorts of things. I wonder if, if, if those critics are sort of aware of the historical realities of a lot of how, how this happens and how this sort of cooperation is not is that there can be such a thing as cooperation mm-hmm. that it's not mm-hmm. just a question of domination and servitude but that there are relationships that can emerge working towards freedom working towards sovereignty um that are that are in the uh, are that are in the interests of all parties you i think raise a good point especially about you know the again, properly understood in this terminology, because I've made such a point about terminology in this conversation, of American exceptionalism. That, you know, an American exceptionalism, exceptional is not just in the way that like your sixth grade teacher would pat you on the head and say you're exceptional. I mean, it it encompasses all of the good and bad things about America. That, you know, the we're exceptional in the way that we just have higher rates of violence in this country than most other countries have. That is an example of American exceptionalism, which just means we're different. I think you see this in the 
character of the American Revolution, where if you were to look around the world at different kinds of tyrannies that people have been subjected to and the revolutions that have overthrown those tyrannies, one could be forgiven for thinking that the American Revolution is somewhat frivolous. I mean, the idea that we were exercised to the extent that we were about taxation um, from, you know, a government that I think could make a case that they were completely within their rights to impose that kind of taxation on on the colonies. It seems frivolous, but it, it it's a reminder of, you know, the the concept of tyranny that we had was informed by the legacy of the Glorious Revolution, by the legacy of, you know, where the people who were living in those colonies had come from and the kinds of things that they had come to expect. And Sam, to to go back to your point, at some point, you know, you have an evolution in the culture that seeded the people that eventually became the people who were living in a more enlightenment society with the kind of prosperity that you were seeing in the 1700s in England who come here and become those exceptional American people. There is a transition in that culture going from living in that kind of a tribal way that speaks a lot more to our human nature to live in those kinds of tribes and small bands of people to living in a a contract rule of law society that is functionally different. And Mm -hmm. how if we, you know, I, I, I will cede your point that in Afghanistan, there's just no history with all of that. But if we believe that, as I think we all do here, that human beings are capable of that kind of freedom, then what what has to happen for that kind of a cultural change to happen in a place like Afghanistan for people to be able to live that kind of way. And again, in their own form of it, they don't have to live. There was this idea that I think was clear and false, that if only they could have a constitution like the United States has a constitution, that they would just be fine. And you're right, that it is a much bigger cultural question than just giving them a piece of paper with a bunch of stuff written down. How does that change take place for a society Society and a culture with extreme difficulty. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality, right? Because um, it's extremely difficult. Because what you're talking about is the transition of societies from essentially uh, clan-like, tribal-like societies to what Scottish Enlightenment thinkers called commercial society, whereby. Social ties are based less on things like kinship and become much more based upon questions of self-interest, mediated through institutions like contracts, uh, backed up by a broad commitment to certain norms, such as the norms that underlie things like rule of law and constitutionalism. So it's extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, to the I've thought about this question quite a bit. And I basically have come up with this this conclusion that if you're going to have that type of transition occur, you need to look, and sometimes it's very difficult because sometimes these sources are hard to find, you need to look within the culture that you're talking about or you're dealing with and try and find traditions of thought upon which you can ground and associate these, let's call them commercial habits, commercial institutions, uh, because that way you can establish at least at some level some type of indigenous precedent that people can look back and say, oh, yes, this is part of our history. This is not an imposition from the outside. This is something that people in our tradition and our society and our culture have thought about, written about, and talked about. Um, There's a lot of work going on in this area um, when it comes to the Muslim world, for example, with uh, people like Mustafa Akyol, who's associated with Acton, with this very interesting book that Acton has just published, uh, basically arguing for some of these things, not on the basis of um, Western tradition so much as what you might call certain streams of thought 
and culture that have existed in parts of the Muslim world at different points of time. Um, another society which has done this and I think has managed to do this quite successfully is Israel, right, because we're talking about a culture and society that when it was first set up, when the state of Israel was first set up, it was a socialist environment. It was very much run by labor Zionists. And one of the successes of that society in transitioning away from some of those ways of thinking and acting towards more market-based, a more, more explicitly market-based economy with all the institutions and habits that go along with that, Quite a bit of work has been done in Israel in rooting those things in long-standing Jewish traditions, whether it's in the Talmud, whether it's in the Torah, whether it's in the centuries-long history of Jewish involvement in commerce. That has provided a major legitimation for the emergence of much more a much more robust market economy in the state of Israel. So I think that's, to my mind, that's the only way you can do that with societies that don't have this strong history of, let's call them Western norms, et cetera, or have not been strongly influenced, as as, um, India was, by the presence of a group of people within that society who are promulgating these norms and expecting everyone to act in particular ways. I think Dan's point also about cooperation is very important. Uh, Remember, the British controlled India with about 55,000 people. Now, they couldn't do do that by themselves. They had to work with indigenous elites. There was a reason why people like Gandhi went and studied outside India and then came back. The, The British very successfully built up an indigenous elite that was very well informed and thoughtful about these types of questions. So I think that's another way if you can establish these forms of cooperation that clearly push a society in a particular direction. So I think those are your options. It's either cooperation and to a certain extent co-option or looking for indigenous traditions that support this type of thinking. Even if those traditions are marginal and weak, they're better than nothing. As Sam mentioned, uh, Mustafa Akiol's uh, new book, Why as a Muslim I Defend uh, Liberty, is, is sadly quite timely at the moment with what is going on in Afghanistan. We'll put a link to uh, that book in the show notes as well as uh, another book that we recently published here at Acton from Ali Salman, uh, Islam and Economics, A Primer on Markets, Morality and Justice. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And note that we have interviews with both of them uh, coming up on Acton Line, our interview podcast. Um, and I I, it, it's. I'm remembering now the final quote at the end of the movie Charlie Wilson's War, if you've seen it from Congressman Charlie <laughs> Wilson, which is a, a great movie and now seems even more timely, that appears on screen at the end of the film, that these things happened, they were glorious and they changed the world, and then we blanked up the endgame, uh, which seems that if history doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes, and, and you can see the rhyme right now. We've gone long on Afghanistan. I know we'll have plenty more opportunity to talk about that. So I'm going to move that we table talking about infrastructure. So sorry, guys. Infrastructure week is going to have to wait at least another week before we can uh, we can discuss it. But I want to move on to something that, Sam, you highlighted on Twitter yesterday, the 15th of August, is the 50th anniversary of the departure from the gold standard for the United States. Uh, And I believe your characterization of it was that, uh, whatever its limitations, the gold standard was arguably better than the present system. How was it better? Well, uh, the first thing to note is that when President Nixon took us off the gold standard on August the 15th, 1971, It's important to remember that we were already far down the track of having de-linked the US dollar from the classic gold standard. We were on what was called the dollar standard, which meant that basically countries would accumulate amounts of money in dollars, which they could then exchange for, um, for gold. That was the thesis. The classic gold standard, which existed between 1871 and 19, basically 1914, was where all countries adhered to the gold standard, whereby whatever their their currency was, it could be exchanged for whatever amount 
of gold. So we had already moved a fair away from that. So that's important to keep in mind. I think the, the thing that was interesting about the classic gold standard, why I think it was important, one was it, it maintained a very steady value of currencies. In fact, the steadiest we've seen in centuries for a, very, for a comparatively long period of time. That was the first thing. The second thing was it limited the state's ability to use the money supply to pursue particular economic objectives. Under the classic gold standard, the government did a, the government or central bank didn't sit around and say, okay, what's going to be the optimal interest rate in nine months' time or ten months' time or two years' time, which is essentially what the Fed and other central banks do these days. That's not what they did. They would basically just adjust the currency in light of um, in light of currency flows, in, in, in light of trade flows, etc. They didn't have this vision of using monetary policy as a tool for trying to achieve particular objectives, which is what it's used for now. So if you look at the charter of the Fed, it's basically there's two things. One is to maintain stable currency, and the second is to uh, maintain employment at whatever level is deemed optimal. Guess what? Sometimes you can't do both those things at the same time. Sometimes those are mutually exclusive objectives. So the gold standard, I mean, I think the main reason why it was arguably better. Now, it had its faults. I'm not saying the gold standard was perfect. I'm not saying that the gold standard is the only way you can do monetary policy. There are probably all sorts of other different ways which we haven't even thought of yet, which might be possibilities. But it really did limit the capacity of the government to use monetary policy as a tool for achieving certain ends and also for using monetary policy as a way of essentially providing a short-term fix to economic problems that require a much deeper, harder, more unpopular fiscal adjustment in the economy. So I think to a certain extent the way that it works now um, central banking essentially allows governments to do to keep basically putting off problems, long-term structural problems in the economy by simply playing around with interest rates. And the gold standard sort of really limited the capacity of governments to do that. Unfortunately, Dan, we have yet to invent some kind of uh, interdimensional travel that will allow us <laughs> to visit Earth 2, which would be the control experiment in this case where they, we stuck on the gold standard and we could see what that society is like. But we can only look around and we can look at the 50 years of history since the, uh, the 1970s, since we went off the gold standard, to see what we can see, which has been a continual ex uh, escalation in government government spending, the way that the Federal Reserve has uh, acted, as Sam has highlighted here, um, that we have had a, a whole lot of boom and bust cycles, which again is to not say these things didn't happen prior to us going off the gold standard, but I think it would be fair, and I'm not an economist, nor do I play one on TV or or on behind a microphone for a podcast in this case, to say that um, we're looking at the world since we've gone off the gold standard, and there seems to be these ratcheting, escalating cycles of all of this stuff uh, with unpleasant outcomes. There's an interesting website that not, not everything on it is, is I think, I think indicative of the gold standard, but it's called uh, WTF happened in 1971. And they go through <laughs> sort of the general price level increases and I get into some of these some interesting charts of these sorts of things. Yeah, I did see one of them uh, that tied, was it to productivity growth and yep. then wages? And you see the kind of not flatlining, but a it's a much shorter um, or less steep increase in wages in connection to uh, productivity that increases since 1971. Yeah. And there are, there are all sorts of reasons to want just money. And there are reasons to look back on the gold standard and, and say that, that it was fundamentally a more just money. Now, one of the things we can do, we, we don't have our time machine, but we do have a world with different currencies that are managed in different ways. And if we look historically at, you know, let's say the Swiss franc, if we look at uh, uh, post-war uh, Deutschmark, uh, if we look even in some ways uh, to uh, what's going on with the euro, 
we can see, you know, the, the, in, even if we look at the Fed, in comparison with, you know, Argentine monetary policy, the Fed does quite well. That's and a low is in bar. Fact, <laughs> in fact, I mean, as extravagant as it is on a worldwide level, the, the, the Fed represents the tighter end of monetary policy, which is, which is frightening to think about. But you see, you see what's going on in Lebanon today. You see what's going on in Argentina and, and much of the world. We are seeing inflation and, uh, the Fed is, is, uh, is not the leader in that, but it does represent a sort of consensus that, that that I think is in the wrong direction. And another way we could go about doing this is something more structural in terms of a rules-based monetary mm-hmm. policy. Now, those rules depend on constitutional forms and men and women who abide by them. So in that sense, it's it's less foolproof. But there are options to take us into a better direction um, beyond – uh, uh, just to return to the gold standard. I yeah, I agree with that. Uh, that's an important point, right, Sam? Because I, I yeah. two two things I want to address to you. One, um, talking about this is interesting from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. but I would imagine you would agree that there's just not only not a likelihood, it probably wouldn't even be advisable for us to try to go back to the gold standard, that we need to probably find some other way of figuring out how to deal with the problems that you highlighted. Um, But that just the idea of, well, you can click some switch and return back to the gold standard is something that's not going to happen. And then in terms of the competition part of it, one form of currency that Dan didn't mention is cryptocurrency now also being a competitor to the, uh, the fiat dollar. Uh, so yes. curious on that. <clears throat> yes. I mean, this is uh, the rules based approach is something that people like um, the Nobel economist James Buchanan talked a great deal about when it came to trying to deal with this problem of how do we depoliticize, if you like, monetary policy? How do we get um, officials, even think about it this way, even independent central banks? such as the European Central Bank and the, uh, the Federal Reserve. I mean, they are, they are immensely subject to political pressures all the time. And in the case of the European Central Bank, I don't think they're even pretending anymore to be somehow sort of independent. They talk about, well, we have to pay attention to what governments want, etc. So I think some type of rules-based system, I think, at this present moment in time, is probably uh, the most likely option if we were going to move away from the, the current status quo. Now, as Dan says, this depends upon the willingness of individuals, groups, and perhaps above all governments to obey their own laws, especially during times of crises. So the European Central Bank is an example of an institution that was created and it had, there are rules built into the um, the Lisbon Treaty that basically say this is what the bank can do and what the bank can't do. The European Central Bank has broken those rules continuously since 2008. They've been called out on this by no less than the German Constitutional Court but it hasn't stopped their behaviour. So it's a really good example, I think, that if you're going to move in the direction of a rules-based monetary order, there has to be some sort of internalization of why it's important to obey these rules and that rules like this are always constituted for the long term because at the mo- and they have to be constituted for the long term. So I think that's the only way you can think seriously about monetary policy because at the moment our monetary policy is, seems to be geared for whatever happens to be the next cycle, the next quarter, the next half year, and the likelihood of what people are thinking is going to be happening in a year's time, in two years' time at the most, rather than thinking about what do we want things to be like in about 10, 20, 30 years' time. That was the thing about the gold standard. It, it sort of made people think long-term about these sorts of issues, and I think a rules-based order would more or less do the same thing, but it really depends upon normative commitment to the reasons why we obey these rules, even in times of crisis. It means being willing to say, yes, we're having a severe economic downturn, but we're not going to play around 
with monetary policy to try and alleviate the situation because in the long term that's going to be very bad for us. That requires enormous discipline on the part of governments but also on the part of the citizenry, right, because we have to realise we can't go to the government and insist that they use monetary policy to get us out of this hole in this particular point in time. And unfortunately, I see neither the willingness on the part of governments or on part of the citizenry to embrace that. Well, hey, Dan, the good news is that uh, right now we're really, really good at uh, thinking seriously and long term about problems in this country. So, oh, oh wait, checking my notes. No, we're not. Um, so too bad. This is where cryptocurrency is promising because all of these are rules based systems because they're all based on code. And now this doesn't totally absolve uh of the of them of these problems, there was uh, a number of years ago a uh, an exploit in the code of uh, Ethereum, mm-hmm. which resulted in funds being shifted uh, away from their rightful owners to uh, to the industrious uh, hacker of the or, or exploiter of this. This was done within the rules of the code base, and then they came back and reversed that transaction. The one that I think is most promising where we haven't seen these sorts of things is Bitcoin, um, which is on a set inflation schedule until it reaches 21 million and then it will be a fixed supply. I don't know if a fixed supply currency is necessarily a good thing, but it is a rules-based system that has been operating according to those rules since its inception. And that's encouraging. We will see what happens, and I think we will wrap it up there. I want to thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast in the Acton Line podcast feed, take a look in the show notes for this episode for a link to where you can subscribe to Acton Unwind on its own individual podcast feed. This podcast is new, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, please, so that more people can find us. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.